weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we kick off season 14 as we join the Doctor and Sarah Jane on a trip to San Martino, Italy in 1492, where they'll face off against the Madragora Helix and the Mask of Madragora. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the Companions and the Villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. So I am going to give, as always, the story recap. And watching this, I had like a mad urge to replay um, Assassin's Creed 2 because that's set in this particular time period in Italy. And I was like, oh, I just want to jump around the place again. I just wanted to watch Shakespeare, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that, some much to do or something. Yeah, no, that that too. <laughs> uh, part 1. The Doctor and Sarah Jane wander the endless corridors of the TARDIS, investigating the various rooms in it, and come across the secondary control room. The Doctor finds mementos of his previous incarnations, and says that he should be able to pilot the TARDIS just as easily from this room. He activates a view screen, and they are greeted by the sight of the Mandragora Helix. He explains that it is a sentient spiral of pure energy, and starts to pilot the TARDIS away from it, saying that it is very dangerous. Unfortunately, they get sucked into it, and the Doctor says that they will have to fly through it to the other side. Sarah Jane says that she can feel it inside her head, and the Doctor tells her to concentrate on anything to combat the effects of the energy. The TARDIS is then battered by the energy of the Helix, but it eventually stops. The Doctor then says that he doesn't know where they are and tells Sarah Jane to stay behind while he goes to investigate. However, she follows after him, and they find themselves in an endless echoing void. As they look around, they suddenly are attacked by balls of helix energy, and the Doctor pushes Sarah Jane back into the TARDIS so they can escape. As they leave, the sound of evil laughter fills the void. In the Italian province of San Martino, a group of peasants are ambushed and killed by the soldiers of nobleman, Count Federico. He orders that a few survivors be left so they can warn the local dissidents to stop their uprising. He then returns to the castle of his brother, the Duke, who is currently on his deathbed, surrounded by priests and his son, Giuliano. Giuliano asks Hieronymus, the court astrologer, about the prediction he made of his father's death, saying that he doesn't believe in his denovations. Hieronymus leaves as Federico arrives and Giuliano confronts him about his brutality towards the peasantry. Federico storms out and Marco, Giuliano's companion, warns him to be careful as his uncle holds a lot of influence in the court. Giuliano says that as he is inheriting the dukedom from his father, he wants to move it away from the old superstitions and towards the future. Marco then comments on how suddenly Giuliano's father became ill and died. In Hieronymus's chambers, Federico says they need to eliminate Giuliano quickly so that he can become the Duke. Hieronymus tells him that they need to be careful as Giuliano may suspect him, given the amount of people that they have killed in order to clear the way to the dukedom. He then confides to Federico that as the summer solstice draws closer, his predictions have become more and more accurate. Federico thinks that he is starting to believe the false predictions he has given to account for the deaths and tells him that he will kill Giuliano in two days. After he leaves, Hieronymus hears the same evil laughter from the centre of the helix. Meanwhile, the TARDIS lands in a nearby forest, and the Doctor and Sarah Jane go to take a look at their surroundings. The Doctor gets distracted by some artefacts on the ground that indicate when they have landed, and doesn't notice Sarah Jane wander off into a nearby orange grove. He calls out for her but gets no answer, so he goes looking for her, and finds her unconscious and being carried away by a trio of hooded and roped men. The doctor throws one of them to the ground using Venusian Aikido and demands that the others let her go. 
However, the man he threw to the ground gets up and knocks him out with a rock before leaving with the others and Sarah Jane. Back at the TARDIS, the doors open and a floating orb of helix energy exits the ship before going off into the forest. The Doctor wakes up a short while later and goes in search of Sarah Jane. He spots a peasant gathering straw, but watches as the orb attacks him and burns his body to a crisp before floating away. In his study, Giuliano and Marco are discussing the advancements being made in astronomy and what it could mean for their understanding of the universe. They are interrupted by Federico and Hieronymus, who tells him that Hieronymus' denovations have predicted his approaching death. Giuliano scoffs at the prediction, and when Federico says that his father felt the same way, Giuliano replies that he doubts the cause of his father's death. Hieronymus leaves and Giuliano then asks Federico about the peasantry. Federico says that foreign agents are inciting the rebellion and promises to stop them. Out in the woods, the doctor asks a group of peasants if they have seen Sarah Jane, but they flee when they hear horses approaching. A squad of Federico's guards appear and the captain, Rossini, demands that the doctor produce some identification. Instead, the doctor takes out a football rattle and the noise from it spooks the horses, allowing him to unseat one of the guards and flee on his horse. The rest of the guards take off after him and he is eventually intercepted by another patrol. Meanwhile, a struggling Sarah Jane is brought to an underground temple where the hooded figures tell their leader where she was found. He says that her discovery is in accordance with an ancient prophecy and he tells Sarah Jane that she will be sacrificed to the pagan god Demnos. She is dressed in a ceremonial robe and forced to drink from a smoking chalice. The doctor is taken to Federico who asks him who he is and where he came from. The doctor says that he needs to find the Mandragor energy and return it to the Helix before it destroys the planet. Federico and his courtiers laugh at him, so he instead uses more period-appropriate language to get his point across. Federico thinks that he is an astrologer, like Hieronymus, and he sends for him so the two can compete. At that moment, the Mandragor energy approaches the city limits and kills a guard. In the palace, the doctor mocks Hieronymus' superstitious ideology when he poses a question to him, and Federico orders him to be taken outside to be executed, telling the recently arrived Giuliano that he is a spy. A crowd gathers for the execution, and the doctor has his head placed on the block as the executioner prepares to behead him. Part 2 The doctor stops the executioner so he can make himself presentable for the execution. He takes off his scarf, but quickly whips it around the executioner's leg and trips him up. He then jumps on the back of a nearby horse, knocking off the soldier already on it, and takes off through the streets, pursued by more guards. Once he has cleared the guards, he dismounts and sends the horse on its way before cutting through a side street. He runs past a pair of guards examining the charred body of the guard killed by the energy, but keeps on going. He then hides in the market area and emerges once the guards go past. However, another squad of guards arrives and pursue him to the edges of the city, but lose sight of him near the sealed off entrances to the old catacombs beneath the city. Due to his sudden disappearance, one of the guards says that he must be a follower of Demnos and urges his colleague to leave the area. The doctor, having found a secret way into the catacombs, makes his way through the maze-like tunnels. He is forced to take cover when he hears someone approaching, and he watches as a purple-robed figure wearing a golden mask walks past. He follows after the figure, who leads him to the underground temple where the cult of Demnos are preparing to sacrifice Sarah Jane, who is laying on the altar. The purple-robed figure takes up the ceremonial dagger and prepares to kill Sarah Jane, but the doctor manages to get her off the altar whilst he and the rest of the cult are bowed in prayer. The purple-robed figure orders the cultists to stop them, but suddenly the temple grows dark before suddenly filling with the light of the Mandragora energy. The Doctor and Sarah Jane leave whilst the cultists are distracted due to the fact that the energy comes to a rest in the inner sanctum. Meanwhile, 
Giuliano is examining the body of the guard and assures the superstitious guard commander that it is not the work of a demon. Marco enters as the commander leaves and is shocked by the sight of the corpse, but can't give an answer as to what could have caused it. Back in the temple, the helix energy manifests as a shower of golden light and a purple robe figure approaches it. When he steps into it, a voice fills his ear saying that he and only he has been chosen to receive the unlimited power of the helix and act as an avatar on earth. The light then vanishes and the purple robe figure dismisses the rest of the cult. Once he is alone, he takes off his mask and reveals himself to be Hieronymus. In the catacombs, the doctor tells Sarah Jane that there are guards patrolling outside and need to wait for them to leave. Sarah Jane asks who the cultists are, and the doctor says that the cult was thought to have died out over a thousand years ago. The doctor then tells her that a part of the Mandragora Helix stowed away in the TARDIS and is now loose in the temple, but he doesn't know why. Sarah Jane suggests that it could be trying to conquer the world, but the doctor says that the Helix doesn't have a physical existence as they know it, before he can elaborate any further, they are apprehended by a squad of guards. They are brought to Giuliano's chambers, who apologises for their rough handling, but he explains that they need to be brought to him for it quickly, as Federico had ordered them to be killed. They reveal their belief that Federico had Giuliano's father murdered, and is now attempting to kill him so he can inherit the dukedom. Giuliano appeals to the doctor as a fellow man of science to help stop Federico from preventing the city from advancing. The doctor says that that can't be the only reason he wants their help, and he shows the body of the guard. Giuliano wonders if Hieronymus is somehow involved, but the doctor says that the helix is far beyond his comprehension and again wonders why it has come to this time period. Sergeant says that the cult are also involved in it somehow, and the doctor says that they need answers to their many questions. Meanwhile, Rossini approaches Federico and says his men are still searching for the doctor and Sergeant. He also gives him a scroll that he was given by Giuliano's secretary, which has a list of names of the various nobles throughout Italy that are en route to witness Giuliano's inheritance of the dukedom. He goes to Hieronymus' chamber where the astrologer is reveling in his newly acquired power and he tells Federico to get out. Federico reminds him that he is in his employ and demands that he kill Giuliano tonight. Hieronymus refuses, saying that the heavens haven't decreed it, but Federico insists and then leaves. Hieronymus goes to the temple and begs to be given more power so he can destroy those that oppose him, but the helix says that the time isn't right and he must wait. The helix then retreats and the head priest arrives and asks how Hieronymus seems to be so familiar with the entity, believing it to be Demnos. Hieronymus says that years ago he received a vision of his future from Demnos, saying that he would rule the world. He then vows revenge against any and all that have mocked him, including Federico and Giuliano. The next morning, the doctor and Sarah Jane join Giuliano for breakfast, where they are trying to explain what the helix is using the vernacular that he can understand. Sergeant again wonders why he came to Earth, and the Doctor casually says that the cult has a power base for it to work from. He says that the time they are in now is the juncture where the Dark Age superstition gives over to the New Age science, and Sergeant says that the Helix could take over masquerading as a new religion. The Doctor then realises that the Helix is using the temple as it is an energy focal point, and he says they need to destroy it as soon as possible. He asks Giuliano for directions to the temple, but the young Duke insists on taking them directly arming himself and the doctor as they go for their protection. They make their way to the temple, but they are spotted by a guard who goes to report to Federico. Federico says that they can kill them all there and blame Giuliano's death on the cult. At the temple, the doctor tells Sarah Jane and Giuliano to stay behind whilst he goes in by himself. Inside, as he approaches the altar, he suddenly hears a build-up of energy and grasps his head in pain. Outside, Giuliano is explaining to Sarah Jane that he believes the world to be round 
but they are suddenly surrounded by Federico and his men. Sarah Jane rushes inside to the temple to find the doctor, which he is captured by the cultists. Part 3 The energy build-up stops and the doctor attempts to further investigate the temple, but finds the way blocked off by walls manifested by the helix, which laughs at him as he is forced to go back the way he came. He arrives back at the entrance to find Giuliano holding Federico's men at bay. Federico gives orders for them both to be killed, and the doctor rushes to aid the young nobleman. During the struggle, Giuliano is wounded, and the doctor does his best to hold off the guards. Suddenly, several cultists appear and drive off Federico and his men, giving the doctor a chance to take Giuliano to safety within the temple. The doctor asks after Sarah Jane, and Giuliano says that she went into the temple to look for him. The doctor tends to his wound, and then says they need to go find her. At that moment, the cultists urge Hieronymus to sacrifice Sarah Jane to appease Demnos, but he says that she can be useful to him in his efforts to kill the doctor. He orders her to be brought back to his chambers, and once there, he drugs her into a trance. He then hypnotizes her and instructs her that the doctor is evil, and that when she has the opportunity, she is to kill him. He gives her a poison needle to use, and then arranges to have her brought back to the temple. In his room in the palace, Federico listens to the horns announcing the arrival of the various nobles coming to watch Giuliano's ascension. Rossini arrives and says that they have been unable to find Giuliano. Federico berates him, but Rossini says that he has most likely fled to the catacombs, and finding him would be next to impossible. Federico says that he would have to come out at some stage, and orders Rossini to have his men stationed at every known exit. He then realises that he can still gain the dukedom by discrediting Giuliano as a member of the cult. In the catacombs, the Doctor and Giuliano find Sarah Jane unconscious on the floor of one of the side tunnels and wake her up. She tells him that she can't remember what happened after she was apprehended by the cultists. The Doctor recognises the tunnel as the one where he first saw the disguised Hieronymus and says that they must be under the palace. He then realises that the reason the Helix must have picked this time to arrive was because it had someone already sympathetic to it through some sort of influence. Sarah Jane asks them to help him up holding the needle at the ready, but Giuliano helps her up instead, and she puts it away and carries on as normal. They go through another secret entrance and are forced to hide from a pair of nearby guards. Giuliano recognises that they are in the palace dungeons and leads them away from the guards. He takes them away to his own chambers where they see signs of a struggle. Giuliano realises that Federico's men must have arrested Marco, and he tries to rescue him, but he is stopped by the doctor, who says that they have more important things to worry about. Giuliano tells him of the guests that are coming for the ascension, and he tells the doctor one of them is Leonardo da Vinci. The doctor says that if these guests are killed, then the new age of science and reason will not happen. He then leaves, saying that he thinks he knows who is in charge of the cult. However, Giuliano doesn't notice Sarah Jane follow after him, brandishing the needle as she does so. Meanwhile, Federico finds Hieronymus in his own chambers, and when he doesn't rise to pay him homage, he threatens to kill him. Hieronymus apologises, but Federico continues to berate him as a fraud that has outstayed his usefulness. Hieronymus attempts to warn him that his life is in danger, but Federico ignores him and tells him to get out. Federico then goes to the dungeon where Marco is being tortured for information. Rossini says that he is resisting, and Federico says that he will speak to him as he might be able to sweet-talk him. He then sends Rossini to throw Hieronymus out of the city. Federico attempts to convince Marco to confess that Giuliano is a member of the cult, but he refuses to betray his friend, and so Federico leaves him to be tortured. The doctor enters Hieronymus' chambers through a secret entrance, and confronts him whilst he is making a potion. He finds Hieronymus' cultist mask on the table, confirming his suspicions about him. The doctor examines the mask, noticing that it seems to have some sort of rudimentary circuitry built into it. Hieronymus sees Sarah Jane approaching the doctor and orders her to kill him. 
Doctor manages to stop her and breaks her conditioning by reminding her of their friendship. She drops the needle in shock and then warns the doctor as Hieronymus attempts to stab him. The doctor kicks the knife out of his hand, but before he can do anything else, Rossini and a squad of guards burst in and capture him and Sarah Jane. Hieronymus flees and Rossini orders some of his men to go after him. Meanwhile, Giuliano, having grown tired of waiting, leaves his room to go find Marco, but is captured as well and taken to the dungeons. Federico is informed of these developments and ghosted in his impending victory. In the dungeons, the doctor explains to Sarah Jane that she had been hypnotised to kill him, but he was already aware of it. He tells her that when he found her in the tunnels, she asked how she was able to understand Giuliano without knowing Italian, a question that she had never asked before, and he knew that something was wrong. He tells her that her understanding is a result of a Time Lord's gift that he shares with her, but before he can explain it any further, they are interrupted when Giuliano is thrown into the cell as well. Federico tells him that Marco eventually broke and signed a confession saying that Giuliano and the Doctor were members of the cult. Rossini suddenly arrives and says that the cultists have begun appearing in the streets on the way to the temple. The Doctor tells him that Hieronymus is the leader and must be stopped before it is too late. Federico orders the Doctor to be unchained so that he can go to the temple to see for himself if the Doctor is telling the truth. He tells Rossini to execute the others if he is not back in an hour. In the temple, Hieronymus leads a ceremony where he is filled with the energy from the helix. He then summons other members of the cult to walk through the shower of light to receive power as well. The doctor arrives with Federico and a pair of guards, and Federico confronts Hieronymus. He pulls off his mask, but instead of a face, there is a glowing ball of energy. He recalls in horror as Hieronymus shoots him with a bolt of energy from his hand. Part 4 Federico's body crumples to dust as Hieronymus puts back on his mask and leads the cultists to the ceremony, worshipping the Mandragora Helix. The doctor uses the distraction of the ceremony to slip away unnoticed. Back in the dungeons, Rossini orders the prisoners to be taken out for execution as the hour has passed. Giuliano gives him a chance to swear allegiance to him lest he be treated as a traitor, but Rossini ignores him. Suddenly the doctor appears and tells him what happened to Federico. Rossini orders the guards to capture him, but they turn on him, switching their allegiance to Giuliano. Marco suggests having him executed, but Giuliano has him imprisoned instead. The doctor says that the cult still poses a threat, and Marco suggests launching assault on the temple with the rest of their men. The doctor says it is too dangerous, and instead tells him to seal off every known entrance to the palace and turn it into a fortress. They leave to do so, and the doctor confides to a sceptical Sarah Jane that the barricades will only be a temporary delay at best, but it could give him enough time to come up with a solution. He tells Sergei that he overheard Hieronymus say that the cult will attack when the Mandragora swallows the moon, but he says that he doesn't know what that means. On a hunch, he goes to Giuliano's chambers and fetches a telescope. Later, Marco reports that the cultists have begun attacking the city and are using their power to kill all those that get in their way. He tells Giuliano that he has told the visiting nobles that all the noise is from the preparations for the annual mask festival. Giuliano says they need to cancel it to keep everyone safe, but Marco disagrees, saying that it could be viewed as a sign of weakness by those who have come to see his ascension. He tries to reassure Giuliano that the palace could withstand the siege from an army, and the cultists are only using trickery to give the illusion of their powers. Giuliano thanks him for his advice, but says he wishes to go get the doctor's input, and Marco tells him that he is in Hieronymus' chambers. In Hieronymus' chambers, the doctor is studying the sky, and after doing some calculations, he reveals that Mandragora swallowing the moon, is actually an impending lunar eclipse. He says that Hieronymus will use it as an excuse to make astrology the science of the age, and Sarah Jane again seems sceptical of the idea. The doctor insists that the helix will subjugate humanity's free will by making them beholden to astrology. 
Sarah Jane asks what they can do to stop it, and the Doctor goes into deep thought. Juliana arrives but stops when he sees the Doctor, who suddenly comes back around and says that he will need to risk it. He interrupts Juliano and asks where he can get wire and a breastplate, and the confused young nobleman says that he can get it from the armory. The doctor then asks what his question was, and Juliano asks about holding the mask. The doctor says that it should go ahead, and that Juliano should save him a costume, as he and Sir Jane both love a good party. In the temple, the head priest reports to Hieronymus that the town has been emptied. Hieronymus says the next stage of their plan is to kill all the nobles and scientists in the palace so that no one can stop them. The head priest says that the palace has been sealed off, but Hieronymus says that he knows of a secret entrance and tells him to get ten other cultists to join him so he can lead them into the palace. In Giuliano's chambers, the armor finishes pushing the breastplate on the doctor, which he hides under his normal waistcoat. Sir Jane arrives with a selection of costumes for him to wear, and the doctor jokes around with the selection. Sir Jane says that his jokes always get worse when the situation gets more dangerous. The doctor says that they would have to do their best and they make their way to the ballroom. Where they meet Marco. The doctor asks him to unseal the secret entrance through to the dungeons and he leaves Sarah Jane behind to keep an eye on things. Sarah Jane asks him to be upfront with her and he says that if he is guessed correctly then he should be able to drain the helix energy out of the cultists. As he leaves he confidently asks if he has ever been wrong and Sarah Jane quietly whispers that he has guessed wrong lots of times. The doctor arrives in the temple and quietly watches as Hieronymus tells the head priest that he has managed to send the infiltrators into the palace disguised as entertainers. The duo then depart and the doctor begins to make his way to the altar and begins to unspool the wire. Up in the ballroom, the mask is in full swing and Marco reports that the cultists have the palace surrounded but are not doing anything. Giuliano voices his unease but Marco reassures him that they are well protected by the barricades and their men. Sarah Jane, wearing an ornate gown, asks if there has been any word from the doctor but Marco says that none of the guards have seen him. She voices her concern but she is led away to dance by one of the nobles. In the temple, the doctor finishes placing and disguising the wire around the altar and then waits playing with the yo-yo. Hieronymus appears and demands to know why he is there. The doctor says that he has no other choice and Hieronymus says that humanity's future explorations into the galaxy would threaten the power and influence of the Mandragora Helix, which is why it came to this crucial point in time. The doctor says that he can't allow him to disrupt humanity's progress and Hieronymus vows to kill him. He repeatedly shoots the doctor with bolts of energy but the breastplate absorbs the worst of the blows. The doctor notices that the glow of the helix power in Hieronymus begins to fade and he repeatedly goes him to continue attacking him. Back in the ballroom, Sir Jane grows increasingly concerned about the doctor's absence but then sees someone wearing the costume he brought with him into the temple. Thinking it is him, she approaches him to find out what has happened but she is shot when the figure reveals itself to be a cultist. The other cultists reveal themselves and begin to kill several of the guests before being stopped by the sudden arrival of Hieronymus. He says that the final sacrifice must take place within the temple, and he orders the remaining victims to be taken there at once. Once there, Sir Jane notices the lunar eclipse beginning through a hole in the ceiling, and Hieronymus calls the cultists forward to receive the full power of the helix. They gather around the altar, but they are turned to dust when the energy enters them. The helix then disappears, and Hieronymus takes off his mask, revealing himself to be the doctor, who is mimicking Hieronymus's voice. Later, the Doctor and Sarah Jane say goodbye to Giuliano, who tries to get them to stay, but they say that they can't. As they leave, Sarah Jane asks if the Doctor got to meet Leonardo da Vinci, but he says he didn't, and it was probably for the best, as he would only point out the flaws in his designs. She then asks if the Mandragora Helix would ever return, 
and he says that it will come again in about 500 years, which is at the end of the 20th century. Before she can ask any more questions, the doctor leads her into the TARDIS and they take off. End of the story. So, gentlemen and fair ladies, I think we shall amble to our favourite information hub, the trivia spot. Pray tell, what news have you for us? <laughs> Jesus. We're not we're not doing the whole podcast, are we? I'm sorry. No, but, we're not, no, we're not. No. no. Okay, so the air date for the Mask of Mandragora is the 4th to the 25th of September 1976. The writer of the story is Louis Marx. This is the fourth and final writing credit for Louis. We previously saw his work in Planet of Giants, Day of the Daleks, and Planet of Evil. So an interesting combination there for Louis. The director of the story is Rodney Bennett. This is the third and again final credit for Rodney. We previously saw his work in The Ark in Space and The Suntaran Experiment, which were both A+. Plus. It's a, I think it's that, that's a good, a good combination of writer and director there. Mm. With the I, I exception agree. of Day of the Daleks, which, mm. we both, which we're not hugely gone on. No. But no, I think it's a good uh, writer and directing combo there. Yeah, me too. Uh, the working title of the story included Catacombs of Death, Doom of Destiny, Secret of the Labyrinth, and The Curse of Mandragora. I quite like Secret of the Labyrinth. It's kind of... Yeah, like it's it's vague enough that it doesn't give anything away. Like it's not like so on the nose as to like what the villain is or anything like that. Mm. Yeah. Um so we discussed the other week that we were going to be changing the TARDIS set. So this story has the first major redesign of the console room. It's not really redesigned the console room, it's finding a secondary console room. So this is the wooden console room, which I actually really love. I have like yeah. the Eagle Moss figure of it and it's awesome. Especially when you get to like um the stuff like the Talons of Wen Chiang and the Horror Fang Rock because it's like got mm-hmm. this Victorian style feel to it that goes yeah, along with the and very... I think I think I think thematically it works very well with mm. Tom actually. And I kinda wish we'd seen it maybe at the start of last season yeah i think it works very thematically for tom's stories oh it, it really does it really really does yeah we also see a redesign of the tardis this season or at least a new one being built so i mentioned in the seeds of doom that we weren't going to see that particular tardis police box prop being used anymore uh because you know uh it collapsed basically while tom and liz were inside it so the new police box was designed by Barry Newbury. So that's where the new police box comes from. The story is also the first story to offer an explanation as to how the Doctor and his companions are able to communicate with everyone seemingly in English. Mm-hmm. Now, some people w- who watch later stories may say that the description the Doctor gives here, which is that it is a Time Lord gift that he shares with his companion, um, that kind of conflicts with or contradicts what later doctors say mm-hmm. or they say is the Tara's translation circuit or whatever but like they kind of stitch together what other doctors have said like so is the Tara's translation circuit is the Tara's translation circuit working through the doctor mm-hmm. you know like it's still a time lord gift yeah fundamentally at the end of the day um, and it's interesting that it's taken us this long to actually get to a point of questioning it what I find interesting, though, is that the TARDIS can apparently translate Italian, but not Latin. Yeah. It's as if the TARDIS knows when she's meant to hear things in English. Yeah. And when for, you know, 
specific purposes she's meant to hear the local language but it's actually funny because they do the whole latin thing in um fires of pompeii mm. which which is really which is one of my favorite moments in that story yeah. it's all right the tardis is intelligent enough mm. to know when the companion like when someone is specifically mm. saying something in a specific language Rather than just talking normally, <laughs> it's like, oh wait, he speaks Italian, but here he's specifically speaking Latin. Okay, we'll leave that in Latin. <laughs> That's a conversation starter. Unbelievable. <laughs> Louis Marx, who, like I said, wrote this story. He actually specialized in Renaissance Italy when he was doing his doctorate. So he actually had a PhD, oh. and so his speciality was Renaissance Italy. So a lot of the names and stuff come from that period. So. The Mandragora Helix itself was named after, I'm going to get this wrong, Niccolo di Bernardo di Machiavelli's 1518 mm. comedy La Mandragola, so the Mandrake, um, while Hieronymus was a Latin variant of the name of Girolamo? Girolamo. Girolamo. Uh, Gir- um, I'm just saying, uh, Savonarola. Yeah, um, who was a doomsday prophet in Florence around the 1490s so uh, um if i'm right he's the the guy behind the bonfire of the vanities which was like he led this um movement which was like essentially book burning of mm. like vain or profane what he deemed to be like profane items sort mm. of like going back old real old testament type thing yeah um so it's interesting there's so much sort of historical stuff pulled into mm. this um, Philip Hinchcliffe, who was the producer at the time, he was inspired to do a story set in Renaissance Italy um, after seeing the 1964 film version of Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. Which is a fucking excellent movie. I <laughs> really, really like that movie because uh, it's one of the uh, Roger Corman, Vincent Price collaborations. Mm. It is so good and it has a genuinely creepy ending. Um, mm. It's it's so well done so well done yeah so philip so saw that and was like oh why don't we do a renaissance italy story and he was actually the one who suggested their filming location so obviously we have set filming or set recording in in Mm. the story we also have location filming and i think the location filming for the story looks amazing it really does it's a place called port marion in wales well watching the story you'd actually think they were in Renaissance in Italy. Italy. Like if you if you know you weren't someone who paid massive attention to like trees and shit. Um <laughs> like it looks like they're in Italy. And Philip had actually been to Port Marion um as a tourist in the sixties and so he remembered what it looked like. Um it's also quite a popular filming location in general, so several other shows and movies have used it. Um and I think it works just perfectly mm. uh in this story. Like there's a couple of stories i think we've had where the location filming has just been just another quarry mm-hmm. um and stuff like that but i think we've had some good stories particularly during tom's run where the location has been part of the story in a yeah. way you know it's actually worked really well wookie hole being one example even though the story wasn't great wookie hole yeah. was fantastic in itself mm-hmm. um even like the village where they did uh, Terror of the Zygons was fantastic. This is another yeah. example of just really good choices when it came to location filming. Yeah. Or the village from um, the demons. 
Yeah. Uh, the was, actually, in fairness, the village that's around the area for Android Invasion was actually really good as well. It was. Um, the story was boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> You're like my dad watching Lord of the Rings. Well, the scenery was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Bob Holmes, who was the story of him, he wasn't the biggest fan of the story. He wasn't massively sold. But that's because he didn't like historical stories. Um, and this is the first historical story. Now, it's obviously not a pure historical because there are science fiction elements in it. We don't do pure historicals anymore. Um, it's not, but it's been the first like historical story, like super far, or first historical story outside of England. That we've had in mm, yes uh, since Bottom of the Snowman. Fuck it, is it that long? Probably, so. probably is. Yeah, and Bob just wasn't a big fan of historicals. Mm. Rodney Bennett, who was our director, he probably saw this as an opportunity to kind of do Robin Hood. I, I get it. You get to have swords. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't really see much else of Robin Hood in the story, but you know, you get to have the swords and stuff. One thing that I found interesting the first time I watched this, and actually on several subsequent viewings over the years, is that I never understood what the mask was. So, for those of you who are just listening and who didn't read the title of this episode, um, mask in this context is spelled M-A-S-Q-U-E. Like masquerade, but shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked it up out of curiosity, just off the definition, and according to Wikipedia, which is of course the single source of truth for everything, um, the mask was a form of festive courtly entertainment that was very popular in the 16th and early 17th century, though it was developed earlier in Italy. So it was mm-hmm. actually a, an Italian thing. And basically it's courtly entertainment, music, dancing, all that kind of thing. Um, and they do wear masquerade masks. Yeah. Um. In some ways, it does sort of remind me of Much Ado um, mm. and, and the sort of um, party sequence from that. There is a myth around the story that Tom Baker flubbed one of his lines and actually called Elizabeth Slayton Liz and not Sarah. Um, the line was, it isn't nonsense. And everyone thought he said, it isn't nonsense, Liz. What he actually said is, it isn't nonsense, miss. Yeah. But since he never calls her Miss, people thought he was calling her Liz. Um, weirdly enough, so there's been a number of sequels or sequel asks to this story. So there was a comic book that was done with the Seventh Doctor and Ace. Mm-hmm. There was Big Finish did a great storyline that plays off from this in a massive way. Don't want to say too much. Don't want to spoil it. Sarah Jane Smith series on Big Finish, though we've mentioned it a million times before. Yeah. It is fantastic. I am going to listen to it as soon as this is over because I really want it. It's a nice continuation. P- particularly season two. Like, so th- this was the this was the wonderful thing. Segway, sorry. This mm. was the wonderful thing about the Sarah Jane uh the Sarah Jane Smith series. Season one builds off of the storyline from Robot. Yeah. Uh, which was you know, which was it's a really good first season. Mm. But season two I, I think season two is just so much better because yeah. Like the the locations that it is, the characters, the situations, they're they're just fucking phenomenal. Like good audio dramas actually make you scared, you mm. know? These ones do. Like the yeah. it's so so good. Yeah. So 
Um, that's brilliant. There was going to be a potential on-screen sequel, though. Mm. Um, so the Sergeant Adventure Stories, Secret of the Stars, was originally going to be a Mandragora sequel. It was going to be based around the Mandragora Helix. For those of you who haven't seen it, and I do encourage that you do watch the Sergeant Adventures, because it's mm. awesome. Uh, Secrets of the Stars is where basically a horoscope guy, um, there's someone who like does your star chart or whatever, um, receives a gift from the stars. He was able to unlock the secret of the stars. He's able to control people based off of their astrological signs. And originally that was meant to be the Mandragora Helix, because obviously at the end of the story, the doctor says it'll come back at the end of the 20th century. Sergeant Adventures is set in the early 21st century. Yeah. It would have been a really good play. But they kind of decided that the Mandragor would have to change too much and it was too easily defeated in order to fit the plot that they had mm. for the story. And so they changed it to be this sort of ancient power of the stars. Um, though, like, if you've seen The Mask of Mandragora, you can just sort of watch it as a sequel to Mask of Mandragora. Yeah. Just the word Mandragora never comes up. Um, I do need to correct something I said last week. Oh, so yes. last week I said that Seeds of Doom was not originally meant to be the season finale. Hmm. The season finale was meant to be the Hand of Fear, which hmm. for us is next yeah. week's story. Mm-hmm. And the Hand of Fear is Sarah Jane Smith's last story in her current run on the show. And I said that like, oh, well, that doesn't mean that this was meant to leave at the end of season 13 because she left in season 14. And mm-hmm. the fact that the story got so strange when it was actually she was going to leave in season 13. Oh. She stayed on for an additional seven months when you consider like the break and then yeah. the set up and recording. Because she heard about this story and wanted to be in it. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk more about Liz's departure next week. Um but that is something I was not aware of. Um and so I made an error last week, so we are corrected this week. Because yeah, like I thought, like we were kind of still, even though like it hadn't been in a while, but we were still in the whole thing of like where they were contracted episode by episode, you know, or mm. like like um, Michael Craze and Annika Wilkes and Jackie Lane were, you know, mm. which is why like they're yeah they're no like this was like apparently Liz was meant to leave at the end of season thirteen, and to be honest, again we'll talk more next week, but why Liz left, um. Mm. And it wasn't Liz left. She wasn't fired or anything. Um, it makes more sense if she was going to leave at the end of the last season as opposed to her leaving after the first two stories of this season. Mm. Because the reason she was leaving didn't last very long after she left. <laughs> so um, that I think is is more in- it makes more sense with yeah. this context. I've always wondered what the fuck that was about. Um, but this obviously makes more sense. Anyway, on to our cast, because that's a conversation for next week. Um, mm-hmm. So, as Giuliano, we have Gareth Armstrong, who's the only on-screen Doctor Who credit for Gareth, though he did contribute to a number of Big Finish stories. His non-Who credits include El Dorado, Zedkars, Hawkmore, Monkey, uh, where he did the, he was like the English voice dub uh, for a character called Sandy in the show Monkey, um, <laughs> and the Fragile Heart. Hieronymus is played by Norman Jones. This is the third and final appearance for Norman. We previously saw him in The Abominable Snowman and then Doctor Who and the Sailor Rains. 
Ken Federico is played by John Lorimore. Lorimore? Lorimore. Looks like Laura with an M-more at the end of it. I'm going to go with Lorimore. Mm. Um, only Doctor Who acting credit for John. His non-Who credits include Orlando, The Avengers, Spy Trap, Zed Cars, Mild Man, and Crossroads. As Marco, we have Tim Pickett-Smith. This is the second and final appearance for Tim. We previously saw him in The Claws of Axos, though we did not discuss him at that time. At least I can't find a mention of him. His non-Who mm. credits include Anthony and Cleopatra, Aces High, Clash of the Titans, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Remains of the Day, and the thing that I know him most from, which is V for Vendetta. I know him from Clash of the Titans because he's the captain of the guards that accompanies Perseus to uh, Medusa's lair. Uh, and uh, he actually, in a Doctor Who connection, uh, mm. the guy that played the prisoner in the mind of evil, you know, the guy that got mm. turned into a, uh, he's, yeah, he plays Calabas in Clash of Titans, who ends up killing Tim Pickett-Smith's character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's how much I really enjoyed that movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just remember the first time I watched the story being like, that guy looks really familiar. That guy looks really familiar. That guy looks really familiar. Yeah. Yeah. He was in V for Vanilla. Yeah. That's where I we, <laughs> We've got guns. What have you got? All your, just your bloody knives and your kung fu. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tim sadly passed away in 2017. Uh, Captain Rossini is played by Anthony Carrick. Only Doctor Who acting credit for Anthony. His Don Who credits include Colgate's, Zed Carey's, Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Elizabeth Golden Age. You specifically asked me to include Rossini, even though we're not going to be discussing him as a character. Was there any other pieces of trivia you wanted to include about him? Oh, no, it was just, I think, like, kind of like Ducat and Morberly and Stevenson last week, mm. you know, said they had a bit of a presence in the story, but just, I think, enough to credit them on a cast note, but just there's not really a whole lot of discussion okay. for them. Yeah. Cool. Then, yeah. That's it. I know. <laughs> I gave my trivia about the Clash of the Titans link there. There, there you go. <laughs> I haven't seen it, so. <laughs> oh, oh, like, oh, but I think you'd like it. It's a great example of Ray Harryhausen stop motion uh, Greek I've, I've mythology. Seen bits. I, I have a funny thing. I probably watched it when I was a kid because I like. There's certain things that I distinctly like. My brain pulls up when I hear mm. it, but I don't know if that's because I watched it as a kid or because I've just seen it referenced in so many other things. That my brain has created this connection or whatever. Um, it's got Maggie Smith as a vengeful Greek goddess. I'm pretty sure that you're going to want to watch it. Oh, I do now. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You know how to get <laughs> yeah. me to watch things. Mention people that I really enjoy and other things. Like, I'll go watch it. Yeah. Um, you ever going to give me back the prime of this Gene Broly, by the way? Uh, I am. <laughs> I am when I finish watching it. <laughs> Paddy's had this film for like what? Six years. Dare, dare, belts. <laughs> cool. So now that we've geeked out over Clash of the Titans and Maggie Smith a bit, we'll continue to geek out over Doctor Who. Um, so, uh, coming to the character discussion part of the episode. So, as always, we will have the Doctor. The companions, who this week will be Sarah Jane and Giuliano. Prominent characters of Marco. Mm-hmm. Probably leading in towards companion, but still more of a prominent character than I No, it's a prominent character. Yeah. And then the villains of Federico and sorry, Federico and Hieronymus. Indeed. Mm. Maybe a slight discussion about the nature of the Mandragora Helix itself, but because it's mm. so ethereal, probably not. <laughs> 
Paddy's uh, word of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Burns just entered the room. <laughs> cool. So yeah, like no, we figured out how we'll do the like the the overall because that's the person yeah. who does. Yeah. Um I'm trying to remember why did seeds. I think you went first for the doctor last week. Okay, in that case you can go. Okay, cool. What did you uh, think of the doctor? Uh, good, sh- good showing here from the doctor. I think, like, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, we get to see kind of everything. Uh, we get to mm. see the action man. We get to see him get cranking out the old Venusian Aikido, even a crane kick <laughs> at <laughs> one point. Uh, we get to see the scientist, mm. which we both enjoy seeing because he's there with the telescope and with the the astrolabe trying to plot the position of the stars. Mm. And obviously, there's the his whole MacGyvering of the the coil of wire and mm. with his Marty McFly slash Clint Eastwood breastplate. Um, also the caring friend, you know, like when yep. Sarah Jane is unconscious and he like confronts the cultist, he's like, put the girl down now. Mm. It's like, I like that. Um, I like his, like, it's this is more of a Liz thing, but again, just seeing the chemistry between Tom and Liz and therefore lean the chemistry between the Doctor and Sarah Jane. It's great. Love seeing mm. it. Um, I'm, one thing that is present here, and I always love seeing it, uh, is I like when the Doctor isn't certain that his plan is going to work. Um, mm. Because I think that's the Doctor at his best, is when he is fighting from underneath. Like, while it can be fun, to see him have like you know oh i was away i was awaiting this plan the entire time that depends on the situation i don't like it as the norm i don't yeah, yeah like because that gets a bit old because when a, like the doctor like fighting from underneath again it, it gets across the level of like the seriousness of the threat of the villain and it's just a great way to show like the doctor's ingenuity mm. yeah um so no i i also like i just love the fact that he again it's like you know i really want to meet leonardo da vinci i don't know if i'll ever get to meet him i'm glad i didn't i might have been a dick to him <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of character growth in four episodes <laughs> um but i think that's pretty much it for me from the doctor cool How about you? um i'm actually conflicted about the doctor in this one uh, I'll tell you why. So, on the one hand, everything you just said, like mm. literally all of it, science doctor, you know, understanding doctor, you know, like he doesn't ever speak down to Giuliano. He doesn't, you know, um, question Giuliano's beliefs. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, you know, sort of say like, oh, you're so far behind, or whatever. He's like complimentary and supporting him in his research or whatever. Um, he has really good interactions with everybody. His thing with Juliana reminded me a small bit of his uh, reactions or interactions with Lawrence Scarman from periods. Yeah, very much yeah. so. Um, he has very nice interactions. Actually, going back to that, he's very nice to everyone. Mm-hmm. All the all the nice people he is nice to. Yes. Um, and he he's giving his all in the story to defeat the enemy, like every single part of him. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lovely couple of small things with Sarah Jane, like you mentioned, like when he comes across the the brother and who are taking Sarah Jane away. He's like, put the girl down. I also love how that extra put her down so gently so Liz didn't get hurt. I thought it was very sweet. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like, you know, when 
you know, he's showing around the TARDIS and like she's asking like how big is it? He's like, Well, how big are you? Um and she's like, Oh, five foot four just and that's still not an answer. But then later on, when he's going around trying to find her, he's like, Have you seen a young woman? She's like five foot four and a half. Do you know? And so like A, she he was paying attention to what she was saying. But then he's like, Yo, she may have like orange juice dribbling down her chin. So he was mm-hmm. paying like she went off looking at oranges and he was clearly paying attention even though he was off with his own world. And I so I love to see that. Um and the fact that like he he doesn't hold against her the fact that she tried to kill him under the influence or whatever and he just takes the time to explain things to her I think is very very sweet. Mm. Where my conflict comes is I'm massively conflicted about the ending because the way the ending is shot mm. either the doctor allowed one group of people to be killed in order to defeat the Mandragora or he allowed two groups of people to be killed and technically encourage the killing of one of those groups. So at the end it's revealed that um you know after the brethren die, the doctor reveals that he was the one in Hieronymus's um mm-hmm. high leader outfit or whatever. Now obviously they followed him down there. Mm-hmm. So one of two things happens. Either he knocked out Hieronymus super quickly before everyone else arrived after they were captured in which case he allowed the brethren to be sacrificed to Mandragora in order to defeat it and showed absolutely zero remorse for that whatsoever. There was like 12 of them who died Mm. horrible deaths Mm. and he did nothing to stop it. He did nothing to save them and he actually that was part of his plan to defeat the Mandragora Helix in the first place. Now, obviously, the Brethren aren't exactly the nicest people in the world, hmm. but that seemed excessive. Where, if you take it to the extreme, though, and if you assume that like him knocking Hieronymus out between when Hieronymus left the hall with Sarah and Marco and Giuliano and all the other guests, and when they arrived and that sequence was happening with the Mandragora Helix anyway, if you assume that it was always the Doctor, that like the lion head... And Sarah unveiling him was the doctor. A, how the fuck did he do the glowy face? No one knows. But B, he, as Hieronymus, encouraged the killing of partygoers. There were bodies all over the floor. And again, he doesn't seem particularly concerned about that. So, those are some very interesting points that you raise. Really do. And my head has been trying to. Ra- like rationalize them and so it will take kind of both sides of the thing right um i think this is again just my own opinion that he, okay so he goads hieronymus on completely to mm. you know zap him or whatever now if hieronymus we don't know what happens to hieronymus that, that, no. that that's never explained we don't know if he crumples the dust like the others or does he just die Mm. Or whatever. Now, in my head, the reason that okay, so we'll just we'll just say Hieronymus dies, right? Mm. Doctor then puts on his garb and rushes back up to the palace. At which mm. point, he sees that un- unfortunately, party guests have been killed, which is why he calls for the stoppage. And then he says, "Bring them all down to the thing. We'll kill them all down there," which is the trap for the brethren. Mm. Now. When he brings, he tells them all, you know, go on to the, the altar and all this type of stuff. 
it depends entirely upon what happened to Hieronymus. Because if Hieronymus is just dead, but all the energy is drained out of him, I'm going to assume that that's what the Doctor thought would happen to the cultists, that they would just get the energy drained out of them, but they would die. Mm. Um, which, look, in of itself is not great, but at the same time, it's he can't let the Mandrata energy go out. You know, he can't let it mm. be there. Um, if they crumple to dust, I maybe it's something he wasn't expecting. That, that it would be that happened because again it just depends on the body, condition of Hieronymus's body or maybe if Hieronymus did turn to dust it's because Hieronymus was the main focal point for the energy compared to the other guys um, I think I, and I had like a kind of a complaint about this um, in Planet of Evil how mm. things are wrapped up a bit too happy nicely mm. and the there's some deaths and there's some stuff that happens that really I feel to wrap up the story properly should be acknowledged Mm. so I think what you're having here is the same problem I sort of had at the end of Planet of Evil yeah I think the difference here though is in Planet of Evil it was Sorensen yes as opposed to now you kind of felt he was being you kind of felt he was being given a bit of a free pass yeah um and that you know he wasn't made to pay for his crimes or at least own up to the fact that he had crimes to pay for in the first place. Mm. My issue here is that, like, because what you're saying is true, like, the Doctor as Hieronymus says to stop. But it's him unveiling himself as Hieronymus to Sarah that kicks off the whole thing to begin with. Mm. If he had told Sarah who he was, then the rest of the Brethren wouldn't have unveiled himself. He was the signal for the rest of them to unveil themselves and start killing people. Well, well, no, I... I um. Oh, I see, I see what you're saying now, but... Because it was he took off his helmet and showed Sarah. Sarah ran off into the crowd to tell Giuliano, and then that's when the brethren unveiled themselves and started attacking people. No, he, did, he didn't take off... Well, yeah, no. Just g- give me one sec, because I, 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 I get what you're saying now about the whole allowing the slaughter, and I was like, what what's this all about? Give me one <laughs> second there, okay? Uh, because what I'm going to do is... um, Again, just to suppose the avoid confusion with stuff i tell stuff as i'm giving the recap mm. stuff a bit more linearly just so that it kind of all flows together that i'm not kind of going cut to this cut to that cut to mm. whatever so yeah no i'm going to find that section uh you can keep talking there if you want uh yeah, no, no okay cool <laughs> so no so it's actually a different person wearing the doctor's costume that no, that's according to, because this is the thing, that the person that takes off the doctor's uh, masquerade costume is wearing a black robe, where which is a regular cultist robe. Whereas when the doctor appears at the top of the dais, he's wearing Hieronymus's purple. I thought hair. that it was because how would that person have the doctor's costume? No, that that I think is probably just out to poor writing. That, that yeah, I don't know. I think that was meant to be the doctor as Hieronymus because like his outfit was down there and they actually make a point of him putting it down and we see it in that scene mm-hmm. so I don't know I mean I literally watched this a couple of hours ago so I'm gonna have to watch it again but like um, the way I watched it that that mm-hmm. was the doctor under his costume playing mm-hmm. as Hieronymus yeah unless it's like a thing of where the doctor okay so the doctor kills Hieronymus or you know, mm. deals with Hieronymus puts on his stuff 
is caught by maybe a member of the cultists, which is like, you know, my lord, are you not coming up? And he's like, oh, yeah, here, just just put this on or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, yeah, th- th- this is some bad judgment by the doctor. In some capacity, there's bad judgment by the doctor, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And again, my whole point of it, though, is that, like, there is no remorse there. Do you know? At yeah. least 12 people just died. And he goes on about salami sandwiches. Right? Yeah. Also, the phallic imagery in the story is hilarious. But mm-hmm. he just goes on about salami sandwiches. I'm like, I am massively conflicted about that. It actually left a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth when I got to the end of it. Um, see, because like, like, this is the, this, the strange thing, right? Is that the Doctor has been, has done some pretty brutal deaths throughout mm. the, what is it, the 13 years of the show that we've now watched. Because like, if we think about um though some of them have been reserved exclusively for the daleks like the time mm. destructor you know using that on them um but if you want to go away from say the daleks and the cybermen you've got uh redirecting the ice warrior fleet into the sun mm-hmm. um we've got the third doctor just shooting people um we've also got this was this doctor using the cyanogen gas which you know, he assumed it would work one way, probably didn't work another way. Um, but here, I have a feeling that he, he has no remorse in the sense of these were bad people and also, so I've taken them off the board, but I've also taken the greater evil off the board. Now, I'm not condoning that, but mm. at the same time, that's probably what his thought process was. Yeah, and I just can't get behind the doctor with that thought process like <laughs> you're, you're gonna hate the ribos operations <laughs> the idea of the doctor not even giving them the opportunity to see that this isn't demnos do this isn't their mm. religious figure this is a alien presence trying to take advantage of them i think the fact that he didn't even offer the normal priest's redemption like fuck hieronymus but like mm. the normal priest, he didn't even give him an option. And if the way I watched the story was correct, where it's the doctor under the lion mask playing at Hieronymus to get the cultist to follow him. And he, you know, allowed or stood by and watched as a dozen people were killed. I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Mm. Um, and like you said, maybe it was a case of poor writing in the terms of like that wasn't meant to be the doctor and but the Hieronymus was meant to be him and they were meant to be two different people but like that's not the way I picked it up because like who but Hieronymus or you know, Hieronymus mm-hmm. um, would have the doctor's outlet yeah you know um, so yeah it, it, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting one because like, I was loving him up until that point hmm and it's never really bothered me before, but obviously we watch the stories slightly differently now to the way we would the way we would have watched them originally. So it does bother me a lot more in mm. in that sense. Yeah. No, no, no. I I definitely see where you're coming from this one, all right? And like it does change the views slightly. And like again, like if we're going, we can even go back to. An unearthly child, where the doctor straight up just says we should just kill this guy and 
he won't be a burden to us so we can escape. Hmm. Like going back, like, you know, that it, it's not just the modern era that kind of paints him as like, you know, like the whole Time Lord Victorious thing. It's like, it's yeah. not just the modern era that paints him as a bit of a fucking dark angel. It's, no, no, he's been there since day dot. Yeah. I just don't like it. I don't yeah. like that side of him. I'd rather not see it. Uh, cool. So moving on to Sarah Jane now. What are your thoughts on Sarah Jane? Uh, another Sarah Jane, another Sarah Jane story where she's hypnotized. Um, <laughs> I have always wondered, um, and um, you know, the Secret of the Stars storyline, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, another storyline in Sarah Jane Adventures that happens in the final season, mm-hmm. um, sort of pays half the fact that Sarah Jane gets hypnotized a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of her running thing. I think she gets hypnotized probably more than any other character, as far as I'm aware. Um, mm-hmm. But I've always wondered, so when they first interact with the Mandragora energy, when they get pulled into the helix, she obviously has a very a very bad mental response to it, to the point mm-hmm. where the doctor has to get her to start counting or saying the alphabet backwards, which again, lovely, mm-hmm. lovely sequence between two of them. I've always wondered if, the, if that is the way that anyone would react to the Mandragora energy, or if it behaved that way with her because she's naturally more open to mental communication and therefore mental control because like the woman gets hypnotized a lot hmm. and like in the sarah jane adventures later on this is obviously you know jumping the timeline massively um she says that she's an old dab hand as hypnotism meaning that she's conquered her hmm. her mind to the point where you can't hypnotize her anymore um but i've always kind of wondered there's always been kind of like a fan fiction theory that like sarah jane actually has a really open mind in the terms of like not that she's like weak-minded but that her mind is very open to what's going around her which makes her more open to being controlled in that way um and so i've always kind of wondered if her mandragora react energy reaction was because of that because we don't see anyone else other than the mandragora energy is attacking the doctor later on mm-hmm. um we don't actually see anyone else react to the energy the way that sarah did yeah no that that's true um, I actually never thought of it that way before, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I think I'm just obsessed with the fact the number of times this woman gets hypnotized. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers, she's also hypnotized next week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that, like, so I have the Blu-ray of this season, um, which I'm looking forward to, strangely enough, the stories that come after Sarah Jane, because I haven't seen them, mm-hmm. and now I've got the Blu-ray of them. Hey. Um, but... In the Behind the Sofa special on the Blu-ray, Sophie Audrey made a comment that Sarah didn't really do much in the story and how that conflicts with how Sophie actually remembers the character of Sarah Jane because she remembers Sarah Jane as being very much a go-getter, very much a driving the plot, working things out and whatever. And I kind of have to agree with her. Other than being captured and used against the Doctor, Sarah doesn't really do much. No, it's like we've often talked about the companions driving the plot. Yeah. But through direct action. Here it's, yeah. yeah, Sarah Jane is used to drive the yeah. plot. And like if we put it in contrast, say, Seeds of Doom that we talked about last week, Sarah was used as a captive to force mm-hmm. the Doctor to do something. Mm-hmm. But she also was a motivator. And that mm-hmm. was her purpose, was to motivate other people into action. Um, even though she she herself didn't do as much as she, we would have seen her do in previous stories. And kind of knowing that Liz had kind of intended to leave and that then decided to stay on partially to do this story, 
I'm sort of like, did they just shoehorn her in there? Like, was this meant to be originally drafted as a story for a new companion? And they just had to shoehorn her in? Or maybe not have a companion at all? I have a a feeling that maybe this might be one of the ones where it's like no companion at all. Yeah, or maybe originally he was meant to pick up a companion or something like that, you know, because... Mm. Other than being captured and used against the Doctor, she doesn't really... She, there is no plot driving on Sarah's part. She doesn't figure anything out. Mm-hmm. She is pure... This is probably Sarah's most what-do-you-mean-Doctor story that we've had from her to date. Yeah. Do you know, like, even, like, on the on the behind-the-sofa thing, there was... So, like, there was one sofa, which was Peter Purvis and Sophie Aldred. Then the other one was Philip Hinchcliffe, um, Tom Baker, and... I forgot her name, who plays Leela. Oh, Louise Jameson. Louise Jameson. And they're talking about Sarah Jane, about how she's a great character or whatever, and how she was doing a really good job of helping get the plot across, which she was, um, you know, by being the... And, mm. you know, Louise got me the comic, like, oh, well, that was kind of the companion's job, was to ask the questions to get the answers that the audience had. I'm like, that's such a simplified version of the role of the companion. And it's a simplification that Sarah Jane didn't always fit into. Yeah, there were times where she would ask the doctor the question, um, whatever. And Liz herself said that, like, you know, Sarah Jane would have those questions, so it was fine. But in this story, other than being hypnotized, that's all she does. Yeah. See, and with Louise Jameson as well, like, there's a small bit of um, maybe uh, tilted or. Um, yeah, no, tilted viewpoint in the sense of because Leela is like this savage, so a mm. lot of stuff has to be explained to her. So, yeah. they, I think that, that kind of viewpoint, like, Leela, like she obviously knows it from her time on the show, yeah, what her role was. Yeah. Um, I think this is probably the most like that sort of, I think, somewhat tilted view of classic companions that Sarah Jane has been. Do you, know, do you know something? Just some of the interactions going on here. I feel like that this was probably more like it would fit Joe very well. Not in the sense of like the whole asking questions type thing, but I just think with the whole astrology vibe and yeah. some of her interactions, say the interactions that we've had with Giuliano and mm. the doctor, I could see Joe really kind of setting into this story mm. well, you know? Like, but, I mean, like, Liz is amazing in it. I mean, she's yeah. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and Liz does hypnotize extremely well. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think it's probably from a Sarah Jane driving plot perspective, mm-hmm. probably one of her least. She has the least contributions to. Yeah. Thankfully, though, Liz is amazing. So obviously, her performance is outstanding. I don't think we've ever had a bad Liz performance that I can think of. Um, mm, no. See, th- this is like the point I have is that like, yes, there isn't much direct plot driving. She just uses a device mm. to drive the plot. Um, it's her chemistry with with Tom is mm. is what is what stands out in the story. Yeah. It's just the simple small things like you know the whole thing. You, know, you humans have such limited capacity, you know, for thought. Like, I don't mm. know why I like you so much. It's like because you've got such good taste, mm. or but um, well, the way she just plays the recorder and uh, and things like that are, are yeah. very, very good. Um, or, uh, like I am whole... glad though that we have the Sarah Jane Smith Big Finish series that continues the story for her, mm-hmm. and the Secret of the Star story, which you can kind of count as a as a sequel because yeah. those are both amazing. 
Uh, but yeah, sorry, I interrupted you there. Go no, I was going to say, like, uh, over the other thing was like, you know, like, when have I ever been wrong? She's like, lots of times. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> the, the, it's the simple things that just, like, the, um, like, again, the characters don't need to do something new every week. They, they don't need no. to exhibit something new. But, like, if they haven't been defined enough yet, then obviously they're just, they're just there. But Sarah Jane, and I suppose, again, just true Liz, has been defined so much by her rapport with the Doctor. It's like, even that's just enough, you know, for me to mm. enjoy this. Um, also, I think she's a small bit taken with Giuliano because, like, when he's explaining, like, you know, like how he perceives the world to be round... As opposed to flat, which is the what they've been thinking, mm. you can just kind of tell, like, or the way that she looks at him, he's like, "Oh, he's kind of cute." I think she more looks at him like a puppy, rather than mm. as a potential love interest. <laughs> to be honest, possibly. Um, well, no, like I think I won't say love interest, but like I think she's like, yeah, he's kind of like maybe like the puppy, maybe that's what it is. But she's just yeah. you can see that there's a. I think Giuliano's is sort of like the Renaissance Italy definition of adorable. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> um, you know, nice segue. How about we move into... <laughs> into, into Giuliano. Why don't, you, why don't you go first? What did you think cool. of the Duke? Uh, so, a warrior, scholar, futurist. I think San Martino was in good hands. Um, mm. yeah, I, I, I do, like, because... No, keep going. I have a comment on this in a second, but keep right, going. Cool. Yeah. Um, like, Giuliano, to me, okay, is another supporting character that I would like to have seen at least one trip of in the TARDIS. Mm. Like, okay. I, think he, I think he's got such a good rapport with the Doctor and Sarah Jane. Um, because like, he's inter- I love his interactions with them, you know? Like, it's mm. just like, you're a man of science. I, um, like, you know, sh- and again... His interactions with the word, they're just really, really good. Um, I really like how he's not intimidated by his uncle. Um, and he always seems to put the needs of others first. It's like, you know, when he's like, we should cancel the mask, you know, for the safety of both our guests and our people. And Marco's like, no, you have to. He doesn't. His whole viewpoint isn't about appearing weak. He mm. wants to put others first. He wants to see that his people are safe. How other people view his desire to do that, that's not his concern. Mm. So, um, like, no, I will have kind of uh, add-on points to that mentality from Marco, but that's mm. why I think that San Martino's in good stakes in the sense of, like, that he has a lot of knowledge so therefore like he can always make sure that he's doing right by his people and he he can with the physical aspect of it or with the diplomatic aspect of it i think he's a dab handed boat hmm. and yeah so you can say your <laughs> your point there so my giuliano is that giuliano is an idealist though a very mm-hmm. well-intentioned one mm-hmm. um and he's apparently a very good swordsman um so he it's is. he's not all about books like I actually liked that because you sort of get the sense at the beginning that Marco is kind of like the bodyguard. So he's the best friend mm-hmm. bodyguard type. Um, though I do wonder if the somewhat homosexual undertones between the two of them was intentional um, or not. Um, or if that's just, you know, uh, a modern viewing of a historical friendship. I, I think that their interactions 
were very kind of like of the time because if you think back mm. to a very overrated and <laughs> misunderstood play uh, Romeo and Juliet Mercutio mm. and Romeo would have had a very similar yeah that's true vibe yeah that's true I think there's a modern viewing of it uh, very yeah. different um, where I am concerned about what you said that Sam Martino is in good hands mm-hmm. I would disagree okay Giuliano takes no interest in San Martino. From what we see. We don't see him driving investigations into the Brethren. We don't see him, like, he says that Federico was out for sport. Federico was torturing and killing the peasants in the area. He claims the peasants that were intending to uprise against the Duke, which up until the start of the story was Giuliano's father Mm. and Giuliano does nothing to stop it the doctor is brought in and the count is sat in the court he is the one holding court why isn't Giuliano holding court and I always wondered when watching the story why the palace guards choose to follow his uncle over him why aren't his people loyal to him Marco is loyal to him, mm-hmm. but no one else is. Do you know? Like, his palace guard are loyal to somebody else. Why is that? Do you know? They only become loyal to him when the count is dead, in which point, by whatever laws of succession you're looking at, okay, Giuliano was technically next in line anyway, but if they were deferring to. Federico, well Federico's gone, so it still defaults back to Giuliano, no matter what yeah. way you look at it. Do you know? But like I always wondered why that was. Like why did the Count have so much power in the first place? Hmm. And the fact that, you know, Giuliano has all this stuff going on, like apparently there's like uprisings or like something that like the Count could claim was an uprising. He never goes to investigate it do you know um as it could it be because giuliano is so obsessed with science and so advanced with advancing intellect that he actually doesn't see what's going on around him like do others think that he thinks he's better than them because he's more learned than they are so i am actually a bit concerned the fact that like do they even want him no so that is that's no, it's a really good uh, kind of point because um, this is actually something that I meant to bring up with uh, Sarah Jane, and I can bring it up here now as mm. well, right? Is that I think this story is actually too short. I would agree. This is one of the few occasions where I I thought in my head it was a six-parter and I thought it worked as a six-parter mm. in my head. Yeah. And then I watched it and I was like, oh no, it's a four. Because I think they really they really rushed through the um Sarah Jane as the sleeper agent type thing. I mm. think her attempting to like her attempting to stab the doctor or sneaky up on the doctor in her anonymous chambers would have been a great cliffhanger moment. Yeah, I, I uh, thought that was a cliffhanger and then I watched it I was like, oh, no, Um so with Giuliano and with the points you're raising, I think an episode or like, like where was it? it's a case of like if the duke isn't dead but is dying 
and we can see what Federico's relationship with his brother is like mm. and we can see what the relationship with the Duke Giuliano and his father is like so that way then it's like a whole thing of my son you really need to step up now I'm not going to be around like it's mm. like, so like you're actually raising some really really good points and I think my statement about it's in good hands this has probably shaped Giuliano to be a good leader I'm not he's probably not a good leader from the start but everything that's going on and some of the stuff that he has said towards the end that kind of indicates to me is that like okay I think going forward he probably will he, he might have to work to do to win over the loyalty of people but I think he can do it yeah but I think definitely with the points you raised that there's some questions here that needed that should have been answered and they should have been this should have been a six-parter I know that the seasonal structures have completely changed but this is definitely a story that could have benefited from being longer yeah, I think the other thing as well with Giuliano, and again, like my concern around him being the leader of these people is that A, he seems to spend all his time in his room building a telescope. Um, but also, like, even when, um, you know, when they're closing off all the entrances to the catacombs mm-hmm. from the palace, uh, and Marco comes up to him and says, like, oh, the brethren are attacking the village. He doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't send out all the guards. He doesn't, like, try and hunt them down. Hmm. He just holds up in his castle, palace, whatever. And it's like, these are your people, dude. Like, he wasn't there for a public beheading. He didn't turn up. He didn't make himself aware of these things. And that, to me, is a concern. I think he definitely has potential Mm-hmm. But I think he is not there yet. I think he would need a good guiding hand in order yeah. to oh, be. Oh, oh yeah, no, he definitely he will definitely need counsel. He will definitely mm. need counsel. But I think I think the seeds are there, which is why mm. that that's the statement that I'm making. That I think they 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 will be in good hands. Mm. So in our prominent characters, we have Marco. So do you think Marco is that guiding hand that Giuliano needs? I think he is one half of that guiding mm. hand. I think that there needs to be. So, my po- my other points about uh, Marco that uh, before I get into that side of things, right, is that I think he's a really good friend mm. because um, I like that he doesn't seem motivated by any other ambition than just his support of Giuliano. Because he wants to see his friends succeed to the throne. There's not any of this sort of like, if you become duke, then I can, you know, I don't know, get my pick of the women, or I can do whatever the case may be. It's, um, it's just again a case of like I'm serving my lord. Hmm. Um, and he basically he calls him on stuff. Like he's really upfront about stuff. It's hmm. like here is the time to show strength. I understand you want to do this but you need to think of this other stuff so like if you have Marco in charge of the or as a representative of the military side of things then like, you mm. do need like a court wise man or whatever mm. like the equivalent of um, whatever the Renaissance Italy equivalent of like a, a wise man or in the New Age of Reason a court astrologer mm. would have been um, because Giuliano has 
the capacity for both. He, as we've seen, he's a warrior, but he's also a scholar. Hmm. So I think he does need the benefit of people to bounce off of in both capacities. Marco can't be just that one person. So, hmm. like, obviously, I think had the doctor been around, he probably would have asked for Marco and the doctor to work together. And like, I don't see that being a thing because, like, you know, when Giuliano says that like, I need to speak to the doctor on this, uh, Marco doesn't show like he doesn't throw a tantrum or he doesn't object or anything like that. He sees, I suppose, the sense in having another educated party weigh in on the subject. Mm. So I, I actually quite liked Marco. I did. I like Marco too. I do have some issues with Marco, just in terms mm-hmm. of like the way he is. Like, th- there's no nobody can deny that he's very dedicated to Juliana. Mm-hmm. Um, like that is undeniable. However, one of the things I noticed with Marco is he does spend a lot of time shining his sword, <laughs> and not a lot of time actually being action focused. Like the fact that they captured him in Juliano's quarters. Mm by the basis lie ever of open the door in the name of Duke Giuliano. And yeah, he pulled his sword to be ready. Mm. But the fucker also opened the door. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Um, I think in terms of him being a good guiding hand, I think he's someone that can keep Giuliano real. Mm-hmm. But I do also wonder, then why hasn't he been doing that up until this point? Yeah, the two of them are off in a corner giving out about the count and being wary of the count. I was like, well, if Marco is going to be a good guiding hand from like we see like later on in the story, he's like, no, you have to have the mask because we have all of these guests and, and blah blah blah. Um I was like, why wasn't Marco pushing him to hold court? Why wasn't Marco like doing more than just having his buddies back, do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a bit, you know, would he be the best support? I don't really know because he's a lot like Sarah. Marco's purpose is to be a pawn to help control Juliana. That's his point mm-hmm. in the story. Mm-hmm. So we build up that they're really good friends and then he gets captured. And that's, you know, that, that's kind of his purpose, do you know? Um, so, I like him. I actually would have liked to have seen more from him. Yeah. And more than just him sitting there shining his sword while... Like that, that's where I sort of <laughs> get the sense of, like, they do have a kind of, a little bit of a sort of, like, a homosexual vibe. Then we've got Giuliano mm. being, like, very studious and Marco's just like, I'm just, I don't know what you're doing. I'm just going to sit here and shine my sword and you can do whatever. And like I said, the phallic imagery in the story is... <laughs> <laughs> it is renaissance italy um, yeah. <laughs> yeah no like yeah d- this this definitely needed to be a six-parter it it really did yeah which which is weird because it is quite a slow story on its own mm. um but it's slow in a good way yes not slow in like a revenge of the cyberman kind of way mm-hmm. yeah um and maybe that's why i thought it was six originally and felt it worked at six. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, but shall we move on to the villains? Yes, so there is Federico and Hieronymus. And I suppose at the end we can have a quick word or two about the Mandragora Helix. Hmm. 
So we do Federico first. Yeah. Um, we see Federico playing chess and mm. winning at chess. Mm. Um, I don't think that should be taken as any indication of him being a great strategist. No. Which is what chess usually implies in storytelling. Hmm. Because the idea of having Hieronymus predict death, him going with Hieronymus to pronounce said prediction, would surely just increase the valence and make killing your enemies harder. Hmm. Like this, his whole thing with Hieronymus is bonkers. Having Hieronymus put together a potion or whatever, kind of similar to what we saw in the Romans, right? Yeah. That I get behind. That's fine. But why are you having the man make predictions of, oh, you're going to die in two days? It's like, well, okay, it's going to increase security around him for two days. How does that in any way help with what it is you're trying to do, you giant lemon? Hmm. It's like, that part, I'm like, that is just poor planning. It possibly saves him in the future because it's like, you know, oh, well, Hieronymus said that he was going to die and like the prince didn't do anything about it. And it's like, well, yeah, but like, that doesn't mean you didn't kill him. Hmm. Nowhere does Hieronymus say, you're going to be killed by someone from a far off land who we have never fucking met. No, it's like, you're going to die in two days. It's like, yeah. cool. Did he tell you that? Because why did he come with you to tell me this piece of information? <laughs> Could it be because he is the one who's going to kill me? Ooh, I'll stay away from him for two days. Cheers, buddy. Like, it it makes no sense. Hmm. Like, his plot to kill them off makes sense. It's a very, you know, storytelling one-on-one plot. Yeah. Um, but the way he goes about it, it, and even, like, saying, oh, we'll blame the cult of Demnos. Great idea. Don't announce from the forest in your own voice death to the Duke. Because that's just fu- or death to Giuliano. That's just yeah. fucking stupid. Because now he knows it's definitely you. <laughs> and again, he'll just stay away from you and the men you took with you to kill him. Not a good plan. No. And the fact that he also doesn't believe Hieronymus. He thinks Hieronymus is making it all up. It's like, Hmm. yeah, you have this guy making, like, death potions for you. Maybe don't piss him off. Just just a suggestion. Yeah. Do you know? Because, like, see, he kind of reminds me a small bit of, you know, basically a grown-up Joffrey. And since he's he's a very cruel bastard, there's no doubt about it. Like, Hmm. he views his part of the whole master-servant dynamic of his role is that the peasants are his to torment as he wishes. Mm. Because like, I, I, this is the thing is that we're, we're given no indication as to the reason for this uprising or if there even isn't uprising. Is it just him fucking that someone called him like a, a hawk nosed fucker in a pub one night <laughs> and he's like, you know, like kill those motherfuckers. Um, that could be easily it. Um, like he's he's not a fool, but he is at the same time. And it's like it's his arrogance that leads to his downfall. Mm. Also, he has a very um, sheriff of uh, Nottingham moment. Yeah, where um, after the fight in the forest, over and he has like the little mark on his cheek. 
Yeah. And he's like, oh, get me fresh linens or whatever. And all I can hear in my head is like, I'll cut your heart out with a spoon. <laughs> Why a spoon, my lord? Because blunt you idiot, it'll hurt more. <laughs> An incorrect quote. I'm taking two scenes and mashing them together, but still mm. that quote. Um, <laughs> and in many ways, he is kind of like the sheriff of Nottingham, which I guess is kind of like what they were going with, with the whole having a Robin Hood story. Yeah. Do you know, it's more of a sheriff of Nottingham and... Or Prince John and King Richard kind of story than anything else. Um, but yeah, I, I I was kind of waiting for the I'll cut your heart out with a spoon moment. <laughs> uh, I've seen a lot of uh, men in tights gifts or memes mm. lately, so like, all I have is like the sheriff of Rottingham. <laughs> yeah, I, I did nearly say Rottingham when I was <laughs> and my brain had to correct myself and be like, no, I mean the actual. Yeah. Thing, not I'll pay for this. I mean, you'll pay for this. Pissed uh, off. If I was at Crossroads Horses Arena, I'd be concerned with being pissed on. Yeah. Another great film. It is. Highly recommended. Yeah. Over that boy hand. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Watch it. Watch it. Um, I, again, it's it's too short like i wanted to see like what his relationship with his brother was like to allow him to be like the terror of the fucking province Hmm. and why as you say like why giuliano was just like essentially fuck off uncle but i'm not going to do anything to stop you yeah like i'm wondering like he's saying that like the peasants are rebelling or there's uprisings or whatever. It's like, did they have a really bad taxation policy? Yeah. But like, <laughs> why don't the peasants like these people? Or do you know what I mean? Like, the they peasants... clearly don't like Frederico, but they don't like Juliano. <laughs> the peasants are revolting. What do you expect? We have no running water in this village. Um, uh, but yeah. Hieronymus. Hieronymus. Hieronymus is a really interesting character. I don't have any massively strong feelings about him, to be honest. Which is weird because he's like, other than the Mandragora Helix itself, Hieronymus is kind of the big bad. Um, He's a man who seeks out awe and respect and recognition Mm -hmm. for his skills. Um, One thing, I do have a new headcanon that I came up with about two hours ago. um, Which is he mentions that he came to San Martino for a reason. Yes. And that reason was he had a dream or something like that um, that led him to come to San Martino to find the power that it was that he was seeking. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder, because the doctor says that the Mandragora Helix would only have come to Earth if there was something here already open to its influence. And I kind of wonder, like, how long has the Helix been communicating with Hieronymus. So, yeah, he did say, like, that he, like, when he was younger, like, a voice in a sort of a Joan of Arc-esque thing guided him. So, like, that's why I think the the Helix is so interesting, because it feels like it's omnipresent Mm. in the sense of, like, it it exists in all time, because Mm. how would it know that man is one day going to rise up to defeat it or to like, in, in, like, infringe on its domain mm. and power 
and how would it know to cast itself back, how far to cast itself back. So mm-hmm. I think it exists in all time. And it, that, that's why it finds that crucial point of view. And I think I think the story works. Like You didn't need to have the whole... Um, I've been, you know, guided by a voice for all these many years thing. Hmm. You could have just had to be like that Hieronymus is a someone that is rebelling against the new the new science, hmm. the new the movement of new science, who's rebelling about it. And the helix comes down and in a sort of like Lester Sin and the Daleks type hmm. thing, views that as like he's like, you know, have the cult of Demnos be its own thing. And then he sees the helix and he just, you know, conflates the two. Like I, I, it works both ways, re- mm. really speaking. Like you know, but uh, I think it would have been interesting, like, to see that because I think, ir- ir- without the helix, Hieronymus is still a zealot that is rebelling against mm. what's going on or how he perceives the world moving away from what he thinks it should be. But again, um, I wonder, given what he said about a voice speaking to him mm. years ago. Oh, I think. Does again, he believe those things? Because that's what the voice told him. Like, has the helix mm. been? artificially controlling him for years oh it, in, in this instance in the actual how the story played out absolutely yeah. that thing has been maneuvering him like a puppet for however long like 30 mm. 40 years at this stage uh what i will so say what Hieronymus though those eyes and that beard and that voice jesus christ what a combination <laughs> um he, he does look the part very well because he, he, he was really, in um dr hun's Silurians. Yeah, as and the I remember security chief. He, like, he played such a different character. I remember when we were talking about it, I was like, oh, he plays Hieronymus. And we were both kind of like, holy shit. Hmm. That's Hieronymus. <laughs> well, um, I, know, I think it was for the Abominable Snowman that we were like, holy shit, that's Hieronymus. Because oh, he what? Plays, oh, yeah, no, you're right. He plays the head of the warrior monks in yeah. Abominable Snowman. And... But it's like, I think this is probably his best of the three. I would agree. I think in Silurians, he was a bit too mental. Whereas here, he's he's mental in a way that actually suits the story. Makes sense, yeah. In the other one, he was just mental. (laughs) I, I, I think he went off the deep end too fast. Uh, yeah, too fast Silurian. and too far. Yeah, Um But you know, this is like he's great in all three things that we've seen him in. Mm. But this is his best performance. Yeah, all right. Yeah, and I think I've kind of said my point about the helix being the fact that it's like omnipresent and like mm. guy is actually kind of cool. And again, we have an entity like that the doctor did, didn't actually kill or didn't actually defeat. He just told it to fuck off for another five hundred years. Yeah, like one of the things about the helix is before we go into our overall, I completely forgot until I rewatched it today that the helix actually speaks. Mm. I don't know what I had completely forgotten that the helix has a voice. I that's the thing. I thought it only speaks true Hieronymus when he yeah. absorbed. Yeah, I had completely forgotten that it laughs. Mm. <laughs> First of all, it does like a kind of laugh, and I forgot that it speaks independently of Hieronymus. I'd completely forgotten that until I watched it today. I was like, holy shit. It, it actually, 
it does kind of tie in very nicely to the mask of the red death because there is this figure mm. that arrives and does speak in this sort of um very like your heavenly tone or whatever way you want to put it that it's like okay you're not quite of this world are you type thing mm. um such a good movie <laughs> probably my favorite of the vincent price roger corman edgar Allan poe productions mm. so we've come to the overall very good very good discussion this time around i think like you know because like you raised points that i didn't think of and then i'm like and then i was like oh actually no like some of that kind of stuff makes a lot of sense Hmm. also i think it's it's more discussion than i thought we would have yeah well obviously because you brought up points Hmm. that i didn't realize it so we kind of both brought up points that we didn't think so which again Hmm. is is kind of fun uh Hmm. now the real thing is what our scores are going to be based on this Hmm. so I said I said the social, so I get to go first. <laughs> um, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, I think it's a pretty good season opener. I mm. uh, I, I do. Um, I love the setting. Mm. Really do. Uh, I like the idea. I like the idea behind the helix. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this omnipresent entity that wants to eliminate or subjugate its enemies as early as possible, uh, but have fun while doing it. Because theoretically speaking, it could have just gotten to when we were Neanderthals and just fucking nuked the place. But to actually trick humanity into worshipping it mm. and therefore stunt its growth, I think is like just very, very good. Deliciously evil. Um, good performances from all the cast, I thought. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't think there was a single bad performance by anyone. Mm. I agree. Um... My biggest complaint, and it has been kind of um, broadened a small bit based on what we've discussed here, was the pacing. Mm. Now, we said that it wasn't slow, but there are points where it does seem to drag, and then there's parts where it just it's really fast and underdeveloped. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think it really would have really benefited from being a six-parter, because then we can actually get a small bit more understanding to certain character motivations or lack thereof. Um, could have had some really good cliffhangers. Really could have played with Liz, uh, Liz's ability to act. Possessed. Uh, possessed. Because like mm-hmm. she did a great performance in Planet of the Spiders when yeah. she's acting as the spider queen has possessed her. Mm-hmm. So really missed opportunity there. Um, so I was out of four. Mm. I have dropped it down to a 3.5. Okay. Yeah. But how did, I need to see now how that ranks up with your previous scores. Can't keep going. Yeah, so... But no, like, it's... like, It's still a good story. Mm. It, it, it is. It, it's just... I, this is one of the rare times where a story could have been longer. This is the first season opener since season... Nine not to receive a 4.75 or higher. So everything since from season 10 onwards was either a 5 or 4.75. So we had three doctors. 
five. Time Warrior, five. Five. Robot, you gave a 4.75. Mm-hmm. Zygons, That's five. Five. I know this. What, what was season nine's opener? Oh, Zygons Day was Day of the Daleks. Day of the Daleks, yeah. Which I, I gave oh, like a 3.5. No, you gave it a 2.5. 2.5, yeah. Yeah, this this is in my head much better than Day of the Daleks. It's just a couple of missed opportunities. Hmm. Cool. So for me, the one thing I have to say, right? Mm-hmm. The Cult of Demnos, Masters of the Hokey Pokey. Because <laughs> uh, because like uh, we mentioned when we're doing Braid of Morbius that like they hired a professional dancer, mm. and yet most of their dances was this sacred fire sacred flame thing with these weird hand gestures and just spinning Mm. in circles at least they did something this is just you know 12 lads running in with their hands up and running back up again (laughs) and then turning around that's what it's all about yeah you put both hands in put both hands out put both hands in and you melt into dust um (laughs) so that was funny um overall though I will say this is probably after it depends on your preference but for me personally after Planet of Evil I think this is the prettiest story we have had now I have I I love the the uh, forest that we have from Planet of Evil uh, Mm. for personal love for that Um, but this is a beautiful story Mm. the location is amazing the costumes you know, I mentioned that I kind of wanted to watch some Shakespeare. But it's very Shakespearean, and the BBC mm. does Shakespeare very well, and they particularly did in the seventies. This actually, the quality, like so the filming for, like the like obviously the on set stuff, but mm. the quality of the sets and the clothing, I was felt like I was watching a period. Like take away like all the scenes involving the Doctor, I felt like I was watching yeah. a period piece. I felt exactly. like I was watching like the the version of I Claudius or something like that. I was so sucked in that I felt like I was actually watching a really good Italian Renaissance dra- period piece drama. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it was done masterfully. And what I think is really good is that in terms of the special effects, mm-hmm. there isn't too much. There's the Mandragor Helix stuff, which is most, most part of an orange light. Mm-hmm. There was the CSO bit where they go to the heart of the Mandragor Helix. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's like the burning with the with the actual like people turning to dust or whatever. Um, but it's absolutely beautifully filmed. Um, you know, obviously BBC does period dramas exceptionally well. The mm. costume department clearly got raided for everything they could possibly use. And it looks like when you consider the fact that like, you know, Doctor Who's budget was never great. Mm. And like how much you know, sometimes you know people joke about the wobbly sets and stuff like that. This is where historicals can be do really well because you're creating something from history which people mm. have created before. Yeah. Um, so this is one of the reasons why I wish they did historicals more yeah. rather than future stories. You can just, just read the apartment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say though, my negatives for this, I do agree with you on the pacing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of these stories that needs to be allowed to breathe and there are times like the first episode i thought was paced quite well a mm-hmm. lot of time to breathe there like there was 
a prolonged period of time where no one says anything. Do you know, after the doctor wakes up, he's it's a lot of walking and or like very little dialogue because it's not needed, mm. which is fantastic. But I think there are moments that needed that level of breath, but there are also moments that needed more time to allow more information dumping more character building as an interpersonal relationship character building or whatever Mm. my main negative though is actually to do with the doctor the ending the ending just rubbed me wrong Mm. um because of the fact that it was wrapped up too quickly um, I don't mind the doctor joking about how he would really like a salami sandwich or whatever. Mm. My problem is like where he said it and when. Mm. Um, like, we don't know who these other cult members were. We don't know were they peasants. We don't know were they members of the nobility. Were they a mixture of both? Um, and there's no, there, there's no thought given to them. And bear in mind that people had just died in the upper chambers as well. Mm. And there doesn't seem to be any talk of that. And that for me was just a bit too callous. It was wrapped up too quickly. Um, Had that, you know, had a minute or two, even just an extra minute of filming of them jumping to a different location or, you know, moving everyone out of that room, Mm. you know, just to allow it time to breathe. And I think that was the biggest problem is that, they got the pacing really well at the start and then they weren't giving things time to breathe mm. later on. Um, one thing that I did like that I didn't mention was I liked Sarah Jane's dancing. Clearly yeah. the woman had no clue what the fuck she was doing at the start and then really gets into it. Um, but also I'm not a big fan of the fact that like, and this is a little bit of, I, I didn't put this too much into my score but I want to call it out. You know, this is Sarah Jane's second last story. Mm-hmm. And we don't really get much of the Sarah Jane we know and love. Her figuring things out, her quizzing people, her discovering things for herself, her saving the doctor doesn't happen at all in the story. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because Liz, you know, makes gold out of everything she's given. But for her second last story, I'm like, come on, like, Give her something to yeah, sink her teeth into. Yeah, so um, I think, like your point, I think more of her being possessed, I think, would have balanced it well. Um, or her, like, could we see her sitting there reading books? Her discovering something about the temple, about when it was built, about how it was built, that leads the Doctor to being able to defeat the Helix, I think would have been... Um, mm really really helpful for her in the story like the fact that like you know Sophie Aldred who like was a companion herself mm-hmm. um, and like she was watching the show around this time you know she would have been um, a young child when this was on mm-hmm. um, the fact that she commented on it as well you're like Oof. yeah not good so for me I had a I was really struggling with what score to give this because it's like those particularly the doctor's actually bit really bothered me in a bit of, way more than his actual periods of Mars bothered me. Mm. Um, and the pacing was a big problem. The Sarah Jane thing, less so. So originally I was going to give it a three and then 
I was like, no, like it, it's more than a three. Like it's such a beautiful story to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to a three point two five, which isn't much over a three, but no, it still kind of sets it apart. Like so, yeah, because yeah. like if you think about it, like Revenge of the Cyberman got a three, mm-hmm. um, Android Invasion got a three. I would, and Seeds of Doom got a three. I would consider this to be better in some ways than those. Um, you know, in the Sarah Jane component way, maybe not, but overall story wise, I think this is better than those. So I went with three point two five, which again for me puts it at my lowest since the Daleks. Uh, just on the subject of Sophie Aldred, I think Sophie Aldred, Aldred saying that's not typically Sarah Jane mm. is much better than someone else saying, "Well, I think like, all they used to do before me was scream." We'll get yeah. to her eventually. Yeah. And I will recount that story again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, for a season opener, 3.2, you know, 3.8 average, if you're averaging against two of us, yeah. isn't bad, but it is our weakest season opener since season 10. Mm-hmm. And it is our weakest Sarah Jane season opener and our weakest Tom season opener. So... Yeah. Next week is going to be an emotional week, I think. Um, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> the week after will be even more interesting for me because I've never seen what uh, comes after. So I actually, I, I think I worked it out right that mm. when we finish next week, mm. we will have reached halfway through the amount of current episodes of Doctor Who. Mm. Okay. Not stories, but episodes. So when we reach the halfway point mark, we're actually we are going, you know, here there be dragons territory for you because we're going off the edge of known the known map. Yeah, because I haven't watched like it's not, no, you the rest it's of not, Tom's era. I've watched maybe two or three. I've watched one from Peter, mm-hmm. which is the Five Doctors, which has Sarah Jane in it. I haven't watched any of Colin, though I did get Colin's Blu-ray set, so I have them ready to right. go. I didn't. I didn't want to jump ahead now that we got into yeah. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've watched all of Sylvester, Sylvester with Ace. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So when we get to that, I've I've seen those. Mm-hmm. Um. But I am entering a very long dry spell yeah. of I have no fucking clue. What's well, happening? <laughs> well, I think I know. I think this will probably be the most interesting part because, like, we've we've alluded to it a few times in the podcast, but like mm. for the longest time, Tom was our favorite Doctor, mm. but now we discover like this, re- sorry, rediscovered a love for William Hartnell's Doctor that we like that we always liked him, but we just didn't know how much we loved him. Mm. So now it's like when we're coming into the unknown territory for you, will it stick? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so next week is going to be interesting. So we have mm-hmm. The Hand of Fear, which is Sarah mm-hmm. Jane's last story. And then we will also have our special rambling next week as well, mm-hmm. which is going to be so hard. Um, Where we look back at Sarah Jane's strengths and weaknesses and her best and worst episodes. I, That's going to be really hard. I, feel, I have a feeling maybe Mask might appear on The Weakest just because there's not a whole lot of her in it to do anything. Maybe, maybe because yeah, yeah, but no, it is hard in the sense of like there's nothing where she's like absolutely god awful. 
yeah, like, there's no, there's nothing where she's absolutely got awful and there's nothing where her development has backpedaled. I think, actually, there's going to be a really interesting discussion. I don't know if we'll get to it with Hand. We may do. Um, but we'll definitely get to it in our rambling around how Sarah Jane in a char- as a character has developed mm-hmm. over the seasons. Yeah. Um, because it's a really interesting character development that I don't think we've really seen in anyone else up to now. No, no, and I think I know the character development that you're on about. And yeah, yeah. no, I don't think we've seen it in anyone else. Yeah, so that'll be next week though. So mm. I have one more week. Um, I am going to listen to the Sarah Jane Smith series, particularly season two. Um, mm. I like season one, but season one also has um, that story that yeah. I don't like. So <laughs> I, mean, not I love the story. A... I just don't like bits of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Sarah Jane Smith season two from Big Finish on my listening list for this week, I think. Nice. And then we have the hand up here next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Until awesome. then, though, bye. Bye. bye.